As we come to read God's word, uh, Psalm 119, verses 17 through 19 says this. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, do indeed deal bountifully with us, your servants, this morning. Uh, Give us ears that we may hear your word read and preached. And by your Holy Spirit, hearts to receive and to believe it. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And this we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, our scripture for this morning will be Mark chapter 7. If you want to turn there, Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 31. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephephathah, that is, Be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Thus far in the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Uh, We repeat these words each week. Uh, The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And it is a reminder to us that God has spoken and God's word is eternal. It is unchanging. It is never failing. It is life giving. And the reason it is all of these things is because God himself is eternal unchanging. He never fails. And he is indeed the author of life. And as the creator and giver of this word, he stands in stark contrast to his creation. He stands in contrast to our experience that is marked by the withering grass and the falling flowers. And so we say these words each week, and we must be careful not to let them become mere habit, just words that we speak, but always be a reminder and even a call to us to turn away from that which will not last and turn to the Lord and who is our lasting source of life. I want to use the imagery of withering grass and falling flowers to ask you a question this morning. The question is simple. It's just what does 
this reality of withering grass and falling flowers look like in your life? What does it look like in your life? It's metaphorical language, of course, but the imagery suggests what we all know to be true. And that is that we live in a fallen world marked and marred by sin. We know it. We see it. We turn on the television. We open a newspaper. We scroll through our news feeds and and it's evident to us. We experience it all around us. For some of us, it is physical. We are all too aware that our bodies really are wasting away. For some of us, it is emotional. We're sorrowful. We're lonely. We're confused. We're regretful. We're bitter. For some of us, our spiritual lives may seem dry and parched, and it seems that our Christian journey is marked more by disorientation than clarity, by indifference rather than conviction, or by our sin rather than our faithfulness. It seems like life is against us at every turn. We work harder and we work longer. We work smarter. And still, it seems that we fall short each and every day. Our social media friends of our, uh, our social media feeds of our friends look really good to us. Meanwhile, I just posted the epic trip I made to Checkers last night. <laughs> and even at that, they were out of toilet paper. And so I bought a quart of ice cream and had it finished before I went inside the house. Moments like that, withering grass and falling flowers. Our friends have friends, but we're not sure we're one of them. The preacher says that God has a plan for my life, but we have our doubts. And we live wondering when the other shoe is going to drop. Or maybe we know full well that it's already come crashing down. Such is the land of withering grass And fading flowers. It is where we live in a fallen world marked and marred by sin. But here's the thing for us, for the Christian, we will not live in this dry land forever. We are pilgrims making a journey to our eternal homeland. The Lord Jesus Christ has built a highway. He's lined it with flowers and he's put us, his redeemed people, on it. And sure, this highway, it cuts straight through the the dry and parched land. It cuts straight through the, the desert wilderness. And so we journey there here and now. But the end of this highway is glory. Marked by the refreshing and life-giving presence of God. The passage today, Mark tells us of an event in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus heals. But the message that Jesus has the power to heal, it really is a secondary point. 
Mark uses Jesus's healing ministry to point to something else, to something greater, to to make a greater declaration. And the declaration that is made is that Christ has given the Christian a glorious vision for the future. Christ has given the Christian sinners like you and me a glorious vision for the future. And it's that future that empowers and it strengthens and it guides us for today's journey in the dry land that is marked by this withering grass and these falling flowers. And so as we make our way through this text, that's where we're going. Um, To get there, I just want to, we're just going to read through the text and make some comments and we'll see what God has to say to us. First, why are we here today in this passage? Well, the preceding story um, was when Jesus had that interaction with the Syrophoenician woman. You remember Jesus gets away with his disciples for um, uh, some little R&R, rest and relaxation. And, and, um, and they go up to Tyre, the city, and this Syrophoenician woman interrupts this meal that Jesus is having in private with his disciples. And she does this because she wants Jesus to cast a demon from her daughter that she left at home. Um, Of course, Jesus does heal. And and Rick preached about that last week um, from Matthew chapter 15. And so Rick and I talked, um, you know, a few weeks ago. And we thought, well, let's coordinate our two weeks of preaching here. And so he told me what his passage was in Matthew 15. I thought, well, I'll just go read what's next in Matthew. And so I went to Matthew and uh, read what was next. And and Matthew just kind of does this sweeping summary. He says, there's this long journey, but but Matthew's just like, and now he's back at the Sea of Galilee. Kind of skips the whole journey altogether. And he says he's doing lots of great things. He's healing people. The people are amazed and they glorify the God of Israel. And I read that and thought, well, we could do that. But I was hoping for something more specific. Um, And so I flipped over to Mark and Mark does just the opposite. Uh, Mark zooms in. He tells one very specific story to convey the same message. Now, he's the only gospel writer to record this event. And so we find ourselves here this morning. He begins this event by summarizing Jesus's travels. He says in verse 31, then he, that is Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre, went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now, if you're interested, uh, and a couple of you are, um, and where this was, if you, what this journey looked like. If, if you imagine kind of a, a horseshoe-shaped journey, Jesus, uh, Jesus starts out, this is the Sea of Galilee, starts out on the west side. And he, re, he, he journeys north, northwest up by the, by the, the sea to the, to the city of Tyre. Um, and he has that interaction with the Syrophoenician woman. And then he continues on north to Sidon, um, which, if you watch the news, this is directly west of Damascus in Syria. So that's where he's at. And then he journeys back around and comes back to the Sea of Galilee, landing on the east side of the sea this time. He comes back to this region of Decapolis. It likely took um, a couple of several months. It was about a 120 mile journey. Now, Decapolis, Jesus had been there before. It's a region of 10 cities. We see it in the name Deca, which means 10, 
uh, decathlon, you know that word, and polis, which means city, where we get words like metropolis or policy. Uh, And it's the second time that Jesus has been here. When he was here before, he was confronted by this man who lived in uh, the tombs. Uh, He seemed crazy and he would cry out. And and Jesus interacts with the man and he comes to discover that he's actually possessed by legion, a many demons. And Jesus heals the man. He casts legion into a group of pigs and they rush down a bank and into the sea um, and drowned. And after seeing this, all the people of the area are afraid, the scripture says, and they beg Jesus to leave and to depart from them. And now Jesus returns. And how fascinating it is how differently they receive him upon his return. Then in verse 32, they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. They begged him to lay his hand on him. Uh, The man was hurried along by his friends in order that they might uh, lay him before Jesus. I mean, surely they had heard that this Jesus could work miracles. I mean, he had left a wake of wonders uh, behind him as he traveled. And the man is said to be deaf and has a speech impediment. This word speech impediment means that he spoke, uh, but he spoke with great difficulty. Um, And Jesus, having this man before him, stops. And he does something remarkable. I mean, yes, he heals. But even before that, Jesus does something remarkable. Notice how he enters into the life of this man. Verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue. Now. This Jesus stops and he takes this man aside privately. If you're reading through the book of Mark, you already have seen Jesus's compassion for the crowds. In chapter six, verse 34, it says that Jesus saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And now Mark shows us that Jesus's compassion extends not only to the masses, but to the individual. Jesus desires to connect with this man personally and privately. And he puts, Jesus puts his fingers in the man's ears. He spits presumably upon his own finger and then touches the man's tongue. Most commentators understand this to be uh, communication, and I would agree. Uh, Jesus reaches out to communicate to the mental world of this man so that he would know that Jesus was about to restore his hearing and to restore his speech. It really is a tender moment. It's a tender moment between Jesus and And this man, as Jesus enters into the world of this hurting individual. And he touches him. It should be of no surprise to us that Jesus would touch this man. In Matthew chapter 20, we are told that Jesus, in pity, touched the eyes of two blind men. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. 
This is the same Jesus who was not afraid of the man that was brought to him with leprosy, but stretched out his hand and touched him and told, said to him, I will be clean. This is the same Jesus who would not drive away the children that were brought to him, but he welcomed them and he placed his hands upon them and he blessed them. This is the same Jesus who was not repulsed when a sinful woman knelt before him and washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. He accepted her act of worship even as she kissed his feet. This is the same Jesus who took up the, the dirty feet of the disciples and he took the place of a servant in order that they might be clean. This touch, that's just what love does. It's not afraid to touch the lives of others. It reaches out and it seeks intimacy and enters in to the life of those around them. Of course, Jesus would touch this man. This is what his life was all about. The incarnation, God with us, was about God entering into the life of man and speaking a language that we could understand. And he does so in order to bring healing, to restore life to sinners like you and like me. In verse 34, it says, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, that is, be open. Jesus looks up to heaven. This is the, the language of prayer. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. Psalm 123 says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eye of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. John tells us that when Jesus stood at the tomb of his friend Lazarus before he raised him from the dead, that that Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. John also tells us that before Jesus uh, prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17, that he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify me that I may glorify you. Uh, Jesus is communicating to him. There is no doubt where this man's help comes from. It comes from the Lord. This is not magic. Jesus, not just simply a miracle worker, but he is God with him. God with him, giving to him the very grace of God. And then Jesus sighs. The word is used of of, uh, persons in distress. It means to groan, to sigh, to grudge, to, to grieve. And we see here the emotional life of our Lord as as he expresses his distress in the presence of the ravages of sin. And this this for us really is or ought to be encouraging. Because living in a fallen world marked and marred by sin, we realize that the sorrow 
of God's people are his sorrows as well. As the prophet says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And then Jesus commands, be opened. Originally, he spoke this in Aramaic. That was Jesus's daily language. He didn't speak Greek. But Mark translates it into the Greek because that's who he's writing to, people who are a Greek-speaking audience. The command is not directed simply at the man's organs, but to the man as a whole. And that's significant because Jesus came to bring wholeness. He came to bring redemption to every part of creation that is devastated by sin as far as the curse is found. He brings wholeness at every place where we experience the destruction of sin. Jesus is and he will redeem. And we get a picture of this wholeness in verse 35. As the man's ears are opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. I wonder what his first words were. Verse 36, Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus told some people to keep a secret. In Mark chapter 1, verse 44, Jesus healed a man with leprosy. And the scripture says that he sternly charged him not to to tell anyone. Um, But the man, like these in our passage, simply couldn't help themselves. And so he goes about sharing what Jesus has done in his life. And the result of this is the the crowd begins to clamor for Jesus' healing touch. And it interrupts his movements uh, and, and, and his preaching Mission, And so Jesus seems to have the same expectation for these here in in this region. Uh, But the people just, they just couldn't do it. Uh, In fact, Mark even says, the more that Jesus charged them, the more zealous they are to proclaim it. Something for us to learn here uh, about the, the nature of sin. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 7 says, Yet if it had not been for the law, that is the law of God, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You see, indwelling sin, it reacts to Jesus' command. And it opposes him at every turn. The longer we live and the more that we seek after God, we know this to be true. This is our life. We discover more and more the reality of indwelling sin within us. And in fact, Paul goes on to say that this indwelling sin is actually a law. This experience is a law. He says in verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right... Evil lies close at hand. It's a law not to be confused with the law of God, but it's a law that compels. It urges aversion to and the opposition 
of God and of his goodness. Sin is enmity against God and thus it will always contend against God and contend against the one who pursues the things of God. And that sin, it abides in us. And it is always ready to apply itself to its own purposes. And thus we have this experience. The more that Jesus charged them, the more zealously they were to proclaim. Now, some may wonder, well, they proclaim Jesus, right? I mean, good's coming from it, right? Well, here's the thing. The hostility of sin is not always so obvious to us. Sin is deceitful, often subtle. Sin will allow for outward forms of worship, but will always be diligent to keep the heart of man far from God and from his good command. And this is probably a side note, maybe one worth noting in your, your moleskins, that even our admiration, our worship, and our proclamation of Jesus is in need of his atoning work. Even our proclamation needs the forgiveness of God. And then Mark concludes, they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute Speak. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Sure, the people likely said many things. It's not like thousands of people just walked around quoting and requoting these same 16 words, right? And we get that. That's how history works, right? We get part of it. We have a, a many months worth of journey here, and we get this one story. But Mark chooses to highlight these specific words. And we already know that this man was deaf and that he spoke with difficulty. And so why, when Mark concludes this narrative, does he repeat that specific thing? Well, in case we, as we were reading through, we missed the first clue. Uh, Mark calls our attention again to an Old Testament illusion he's making. And it's in Isaiah chapter 35. That's our, what was what we read in our call to worship today. Uh, Mark is not in the habit of making a lot of Old Testament references and allusions. He's, he's not like Matthew in that way. Matthew just sort of speaks Old Testament. He just, that's the language that he thinks and that he writes in. But Mark Mark's makes far less allusions. And so the ones that he does make are significant. They are, they are load-bearing. And we need to pay attention to them. And, and I noted that in case we missed the first clue... Right. As we read through it, uh, he repeats himself. Well, that first clue was in verse 32. Remember that word speech impediments, two words in English, one uh, in the original. Well, it's only used that one time in the Greek New Testament. Okay, that's not real helpful for us. But what is helpful is that it's also only used one time in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It was widely used during this day. 
And you guessed, if you're guessing, (laughs) where it's used. It's used in Isaiah chapter 35. And Mark's not an accidental writer. He's very intentional at all that he writes. And so when he combines the usage of this term, the summary at the end of this event, uh, that the deaf hear and the mute speak, uh, he is, is urging us to go back and to read and understand what's there in Isaiah chapter 35. So I'm not going to reread the whole passage. Uh, it's in your bulletin as our, our call to worship. But I am going to read verses 5 through 7, uh, which is the second leader section in your bulletin. The prophet writes, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute, that's our word, sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunts of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Now, I'm going to try to explain Isaiah 35, help us understand it here. Um, It stands in in, in stark contrast to Isaiah chapter 34. Isaiah 34 is a declaration of God's judgment upon Edom. Edom is the nation descended from Esau, Jacob's brother. Um, If you remember, Edom is, is, in the history of Israel, is their antagonist. Um, and in the prophetic writings, writings, Edom's comes to represent uh, the enemy nations that are against God and against his people. And so God comes to declare a judgment upon them. And as this judgment is described, you read in Isaiah 34 about this rich and r- luscious land of Edom becoming a desolate wilderness. A place of judgment that becomes a habitation for grieving creatures. We, it describes things like the stench of corpses rising. uh, The streams in Edom being turned into pitch or asphalt or tar. Her soil turning into sulfur. That God will stretch the line of confusion over it and a plumb line of emptiness that the land shall become a haunt of jackals. And then we get to Isaiah 35. (laughs) And everything changes. The Lord comes in blessing. And with his blessing, with his coming, the wilderness, which was once desolate, and, and housed God's suffering people, this dry land now becomes a rich and a flourishing lamb or, or, or land in which uh, the redeemed live in it with great gladness. It, it says things like, the desert shall rejoice, that the weak hands will be strengthened, that feeble knees will be made firm, that the burning sand shall become a pool. What a remarkable image. That the redeemed shall walk there, and that sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This 
chap- these chapters. It's a, a picture of a whole reversal of the conditions in which earthly paradise becomes a wasteland and the wasteland becomes a place of great joy. And the reason that it is filled with joy is that the people living in this wasteland, a people living in the fallen world are given a highway. And God has has lined this highway with this luscious land, these beautiful flowers, as a reminder of where it's going. And its purpose is to reconnect God's people with God himself. The separation as a result of sin. Reunions coming back. And this highway is taking God's people there. And it's a picture then more than just uh, Judah's ex- return from exile, right? Just this temporary thing. It's a, it's a picture of an eternal reality. At the end of chapter 34, it says that this is going to be from generation to generation. In chapter 35, it's an everlasting joy that shall be upon the heads of the people. It is a contrast of everlasting wrath. For those who oppose God. But everlasting joy. For those who trust him. And so as we think back. About in our passage in Mark. We think about the healing ministry of Jesus. We realize that it is an act of mercy. And it does indeed show the healing power of God, but it serves as much more than that. It is a prophetic act. That is a, a, a work meant to declare something. And what it declares is that Jesus is the one who's come into the wilderness. To the fallen world marked and marred by sin in order to bring about This great reversal. He is the Lord, the spring of water in the desert that gives life, gives healing, redemption, and joy. The Lord Jesus is, as the prophet says, the highway of holiness. He's the Holy One. And he gathers us in him and keeps us there. He is the way that reconnects us, his people, to God. And in him, we are secure and on our way to glory. Of course, Jesus did this, has done this. Um, in his coming, in the we sometimes refer as the Christ event, the incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, and his return. One event separated by some time. But in his first coming, in his incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, he has a secured and he's initiated this great reversal. And we see it um, come to life as the Holy Spirit awakens the minds and the hearts of people who are spiritually deaf and unwilling to believe 
And he gives to the spiritually blind the ability to see the gospel and trust in Christ. And and we get a taste of it. Even now, as we gather to worship and we look at one another and what God is doing in our lives, we get a taste of this glorious reversal that God has accomplished in Christ Jesus. But it's just a taste. You see, it's coming in full consummation. It is coming in full reality when Christ comes again. And that is the glorious vision that Jesus has given to the believer in Jesus. And so while we still live here in the wilderness and we still see our withering grass and our falling flowers and we still know sorrow and sighing, we rejoice. We rejoice because we know where we're going. He's put us on this highway of holiness. And we stay there not because we are holy in ourselves. In fact, the prophet Isaiah said, even the fools stay secure on this. We stay secure because Christ is the Holy One. And He has given us ears to hear and tongues to profess that He does all things well. Jesus does all things well. This was the confession of the people in the region of Decapolis. It's a wonderful confession. It reminds me the end of Genesis chapter one, where it says, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. It was very good. You see, all of God's creative acts are good. And here we see Jesus fulfilling the role of God as his redemption is likened to God's work of creation. Uh, But the difference is on this occasion, it's not only God who sees that it's good, but men and women see that he does all things well. It is good. And the they here um, is used in a generic sense. It's to summarize the general effect um, that Jesus' work does on the crowds. And, and, and they are astonished and, and they make this confession. And some might wonder, well, was this confession a confession of faith? I mean, just one verse before, it seems that they completely disregard the Lord's command. And so what is this? I don't know, Um, but this I do know. The nature and the quality of the confession of the people doesn't change the nature and the quality of Jesus or of his grace or of his good works. You see, whether or not the people really believe that Jesus was a Christ who does all things well or not, he is 
the Christ who does all things well. And that is Mark's point. So we gather on days like this to remember this truth. Even when our own confession isn't so good, the Lord never changes. He never fails. And he keeps us secure. We remember that Jesus does all things well as we, as we see the Lord's work in our lives in the past. How he has written our stories that have shaped who we are and have brought us to him. How he is the one who calls us out of darkness and into this marvelous light. How he has poured out his spirit and opened our ears that we might hear and our mouths that we might profess Jesus. How he has made our weaknesses and our sin known to us that we might trust in him and in him alone for the salvation of our souls. We remember that Jesus does all things well as we look even to our present days, how he is humbling us that we might not seek glory for ourselves. How he is stripping us of our idols by allowing us to experience the lifelessness that is found in them. How at times he removes our graces that we might learn to depend upon his grace. How he is strengthening us in our frailty, comforting us in our sorrow, and guiding us as we navigate through this dry land. And remember that Jesus does all things well, even, even how he is with us when it seems he's so far away. And finally, we remember that Jesus does all things well as we look to the days ahead. How he has given us a future that is full and it's bright and it's beautiful. How he will resolve our tensions. How he will settle our disruptions. How he will give security to our anxieties. How he has assured us that in death we have life. How he will reveal himself one day in all of his glory. And we believers in Jesus will be resurrected and we will look upon him face to face. And then we will truly know that Jesus has done all things well. And how as it says at the end of Isaiah chapter 35, how we, the ransomed of the Lord, shall return and come to Zion, to the presence of God, with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon our heads. We shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing our Experience of withering grass and 
falling flowers, they shall flee away. That's Christian is your glorious future in Christ Jesus. Indeed, he does all things well. Please pray with me. Father, we behold that all of your creative acts are good. And as we gather together on this morning, we um, look across the pews and we are thankful because you have made us your people and your work is good. We are grateful, Lord Jesus, that you have come to redeem us that we might lift up our eyes and see the vision that lays before us and that be our cause for rejoicing, for great joy, for hope, even as we struggle and grieve today in this fallen world marked and marred by sin. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be with us. For those of us here that came in disrupted, God, would you bind up and restore and give wholeness? For those that came in comfortable, would you disrupt that we might see our need for your grace and the grace that we have in Christ Jesus? For those hurting, would you comfort? For those confused, would you give clarity? in the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And Father, in all things, I pray that you would send us out, uh, that we might seek to honor and to glorify you in all things, being quick to repent when we fail, and quick to respond to the goodness of your grace. And Father, we pray all this.